So you've got to keep it entertaining and interesting. And if you're talking the entire time, that's not really entertaining and interesting. But when you're hearing other people's perspectives and how they're interpreting what you have to say, that becomes more interesting, not only for the instructor, but for the rest of the learners in the classroom. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. All right, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. This episode, we are talking, uh, we're switching gears a little bit and talking about higher education. That's right. Episode four is dedicated to an interview with a student that was in college during COVID and the subsequent years after COVID where it was still a little crazy. And then we're also going to interview Denise Montoya. That's going to be great. Yeah, she's going to talk about, as a professor, how she managed some of the difficulties during COVID and the years after. And then from the administrative perspective of the university, things that they have identified and are trying to address at higher education to support students now, and including students who are still doing virtual learning. This is going to be a great episode. All right, let's just jump right in. We'll start with our interview with, uh, we're going to use a pseudonym for our person because they would like to have anonymity. So we're going to say we're interviewing Chris, the college student. Let's do that. Just roll with that and tell Mm -hmm. me what you think. So the first one, tell us a little bit about what was happening for you when the quarantine first started. For me, I was actually just, I, I had just headed home for spring break. That's when quarantine was initiated and I spent my, my final spring quarter of that year all online classes at home. And so I, I hadn't really been in university that long oh, uh, until uh, or once quarantine actually was set in place. And then did you go back to your apartment or did you stay at your parents' house? I stayed with my parents for the okay. entirety of that quarter. And then my lease was up at the beginning of summer. So I went back to pick up all my stuff and, and bring it all home. And then once we got through that initial quarantine, did most of your classes stay online? Like mm-hmm. as you went back for the next semester? Uh, going into the next year, all the entire year was all online classes. The school also was a bit vague about what classes would and wouldn't be in person because they did imply that some classes would be in person, specifically things like labs. But we didn't really get a good explanation of what classes wouldn't wouldn't be in person until afterwards when we heard specifically from the teachers themselves that their selection process for what classes would actually be in person was simply just what classes teachers said they couldn't do remotely. So tell us a little bit about what your major was. I was majoring in physics. My expectation was that there might be at least one of my classes that would be in person since that year I was doing an E&M series, electromagnetic theory. And usually those classes are like electromagnetic theory and lab, but we ended up being completely online. Were you able to have interaction with peers and professors or did you do all of that virtually during that time as well? It ended up being completely online. They shut down the campus. You couldn't use the library. They did eventually opening it, open it back up at some point. But even though I went back, I pretty much ended up spending my entire time that, that entire year just in my apartment. There, there was no access to, say, like the gym or the rock wall. Um, so my only means of being active were just going outside and there wasn't really any access, easy access to trails and stuff unless I wanted to drive out half an hour to go walking on trails and whatnot. So a majority of my time was just spent in my room, on my computer, workspace, entertainment, uh, socialization, all my friends in their, at their own universities all around the US or back in my hometown. I could only get in contact with them online. It was very isolating, but yeah. 
granted, I'm I'm a I, I do like compact spaces and having my own space, but this was different in that I couldn't really leave it in right. the same way I could if I was living at home nearby my friends or you know in a in a in a place with a lot of access to greenery, I guess. Well, when you were talking about, you know, that most of whether it was your social or your educational or just entertainment, pretty much everything was happening on a computer. What did you feel like the impact of that was for you? I mean, it was definitely isolating. You you mentioned that, but mm. did you feel like that it also caused like, did your sleep cycles get off? Did, mm. was it difficult to sleep? Was it you know, did you start losing interest in even reaching out to friends because you've been Mm -hmm. on the computer all day anyway, you know, like stuff like that? Yeah, not being as social in person, not being able to get outside more, not having easy access to my professors and, and the library for kind of like a study and workspace. It made it very difficult to find motivation to do things. Yeah being inside and not talking with anybody outside of just like through online chats was made it very difficult to get up in the morning like you said my sleep schedule really became incredibly sporadic procrastination which is already something i had struggled with was just amplified since everything was online it really was pretty much just homework lectures were mostly pre-recorded because this was all something that was like the teachers were struggling with as well because they had to form an entire year's worth of curriculum within like over the course of one summer. And, and I had never had any online classes before. And, and most of these teachers had taught, you know, maybe like one or two online classes regularly. So it was, it was a real shift for everybody. Did you, you feel should... like that impacted the quality of the information that you were getting? Like, Oh, for sure. Yeah, because um, I would think in a when you're in a class, like you can ask those questions or it's so much more interactive and kind of keeps your attention and focus better, you know? Yeah, because being able to ask questions in class and in visual demonstrations when you need them, um, yeah. because most lectures are pre-recorded. So if you want to ask questions, you have to eat, set up a Zoom meeting with a with a professor. And in my case, I didn't have access to a camera, so I couldn't just you know, walk into their office, slap down a problem and say, hey, point to it and say, this is what I'm struggling with. Can you help me? Which was so much easier to do in person. Yes. I, I wasn't able to do that. And since personally, I hadn't, I, I had made many acquaintances, but I hadn't really found any friends yet to like hang out with on the regular. I had people that I occasionally would study with, but I'd only been there for about a year. I can gel with people pretty quickly, but it, I, I find it personally more difficult to really find someone I can have like a long lasting friendship. Uh, sure, with. And right. so I have a lot of really strong friendships that have lasted a really long time. So it, it usually takes me a little while to, to build that up. And so I'd only, when I, I, I was in the dorms for the first year and that's how I got to like know everybody and whatnot and like find people to study with. But then immediately afterwards living in an apartment, I was off campus and it was pretty much, I go on campus, I go to my classes, I go to the library, then I go home. And so I'm already cutting off my access to people to study with. At the time, it wasn't as bad because, again, I still had access to the library, so I could set up times sure. to study and whatnot. But once quarantine hit, most people, at least for me, I don't have as, as much like social media. I don't do Instagram or, or Twitter or anything like that. Sure. Um, and so most of my interaction with people, I have to like meet them in class, organize a time, and that's how we meet. And so now everybody is meeting online or sending notes online, and I don't have that same kind of connection as everybody else. And so now I am, I was pretty much on my own. Um, it was much harder to get access to, or like ask questions from my teachers to, to find people to like review work with. I, I had to get through everything on my own mostly, which is another thing that made it more difficult. Uh, and on, on top of the environment of just being in my room all day and just kind of the COVID just was, it was just more fuel added to an existing forest fire right. um, of 
social and political problems and it 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 just made it even more stressful to look to the future and think what what's going to happen and 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 just seeing you know crisis after after crisis back to back it yeah. it was it was really crushing and yeah. it made it very difficult to stay motivated to sleep to get work done to find the energy to do basic tasks on top of my own mental health struggles and in dealing with things like ADHD and whatnot. No, definitely. Do you feel like in all of that, because you are so not alone, there are so many people nationwide and not even outside of our country that had to go through this. But I think there are a lot of people in your generation that are kind of moving away from social, social media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of using things like Twitter and Instagram, Facebook and stuff like that. And I think for a lot of people, I, I mean, I just was getting a ton of feedback from students I worked with high school level and just post high school struggling with that feeling of isolation, like you were talking about and just being unmotivated, feeling like, what am I working towards? Like, what is my future really going to be in the middle of all of this insanity? Because mm-hmm. it's COVID and then we had, you know, some violence and, and just big things blowing up everywhere. And I think a lot of people got very discouraged and, and felt like a level of hopelessness, not like, you know, everything's going to end tomorrow, but just like, is this how it's going to be? This is, this is not something a world that is exciting to me or motivating to me to move forward in. And I think, I think you express that really well with mm-hmm. what you were saying, but I, I think you're not alone in that. Like I heard a lot of that from people. For sure. And, and another thing too, is, is coming from a place of privilege, understanding and realizing that this is a reality that people have been experiencing for generations prior to me even existing. And mm-hmm. now that people are becoming more aware of that, it makes it very difficult to find a way to at least contribute something when you're already dealing with your own personal struggles. Absolutely. And that on top of itself becomes its own anxiety where it's like, I want to help, but I feel like I can't help. And that, (laughs) you know, just adds onto the pile. Have you seen during this time, like in your age group, any kind of new I don't know, agencies or groups or movements to do things to maybe support people? Was your school telling you about anything that you could access that might help with socialization or managing how incredibly chaotic and stressful it was? Like, was any of that shared with you from your university? My university did have, like, they send out links for say mental health on campus, like mental health officials, and they tried to organize online community events. Oh, okay. Um, And at least for the community events, I wasn't super interested in those since they were fairly bare bones. Like, you know, they do like a a trivia night or something. And that just wasn't super my interest. And I ended up avoiding the like on-campus counselors they had because I, I had a couple of friends. They didn't really get anything out of them. They weren't really helpful. And that was the general consensus that I was hearing on campus about the, 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 the kind of like mental health resources that they had. And for those that found that useful, great to them. But, and, that, and again, that's like another, another stress that ended up adding on to that is the anxiety about reaching out. Mm. And, and, then it's, and then it's like, well, they had the resources there. Why didn't you access them? And it's like, I was too anxious to, which is kind of a, was it a self-fulfilling prophecy? I can't help my anxiety. <laughs> well, I think it's just a reality. I can't like help my anxiety without getting past my anxiety. Right? Um, but what would have worked maybe in that situation? Do you think that if people from the university like actually made a phone call or a home visit, would that have been something that you would have been responsive to? Or do you have any suggestions of things that for someone in your situation might've been a little more comfortable for accessing some of those things or having those interactions? I would say, at least in my case, it was mostly a personal problem because I wasn't super interested in what the school had for me since okay. I, I, again, this is a personal thing. I don't really trust the school as a for-profit institution to have my back, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, no, that makes sense. I found much more help in my professors. Good. Personally, and moving on to, was it one of the other questions we have here? After the quarantine was quote unquote lifted, where right. they actually went back to in-person classes. After that first year of all online classes, it was nice to, to be back in person. But again, the people that used social media more and had more access to friends they'd already made kind of had strengthened those friendships. And I hadn't done any of that. So I felt very as kind of an outsider in the classroom, I guess. Going back into that final year, the people that had stayed in contact with each other were good friends and they had their study schedules all worked out. And I'm just like still kind of dazed from the last yeah. year. And I still don't fully know everybody. I'm just kind of like a, a lost puppy looking for people to socialize and study with. Um, and so there was already kind of an anxiety uh, in class trying to communicate with people and, and, and just already like more anxious and on edge than when I was in my first year. It just made it even more difficult. I wasn't able to handle the same amount of classwork. And that in and of itself was already embarrassing. I felt like I wasn't good enough for my degree because I'm surrounded by, you know, a handful of the, those kind of overachievers that are, you know, five classes in a sport, in a club, that kind of stuff on top of like, you know, managing their social lives and two jobs. And, and ultimately the like people that, you know, really have to struggle that hard in order to make ends meet are victims of a broken system. And just because they can do so much doesn't mean you like, oh man, they're, it would be so much better if I had their life. That's not always the case. True. Um, but still I, I have that. And so many people, especially in the US and whatnot, really do have that mindset of productivity is like right. how they define themselves. And if you're not productive and you know constantly working or, or grinding towards something, then you're not good enough. And I'm here struggling to make, just barely get by with two classes and living off mommy and daddy, not even employed. And I, I feel bad about that. And well, there's almost two sides of that coin. Like you've got the people you were talking about that were just extended in so many ways, maybe because they had to be, or maybe because of what goals they have, or maybe just because that's how they function. And then you have people who really struggle to tolerate that kind of activity because they are overwhelmed and they do have other struggles going on. And I think one of the big issues thinking about higher education, because it is a for-profit industry in the most part, is that how do we really support students on both ends of that spectrum? And mm -hmm. what opportunities could we be putting out there? You know, like just having links that people could go to and schedule an appointment isn't sufficient, right? Like that's mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't going to connect with that or be willing to take that step. So what are some ideas that maybe we could put out there for universities to consider, like, would it be a good idea to have open chat rooms that people could just come on and join? Or is that going to be really similar to just having a link to go to? Or would it be more like when people, when we have like hotlines, could we have chat room hotlines? Would that be effective? Or is the phone actually still better or a place you could walk into same day and get connect with somebody there? or even having groups that meet, like now that COVID's over, what are some things that we could be doing thinking not just how to manage everything that happened for so many students during COVID, but moving forward, how do we make it better? At least in my own personal case, I'm, I'm very privileged to have access to people, resources, and, and people that can help me. But in the case of like financial aid and whatnot, and, and, and people that don't have the same kind of privileges that I do. Big push for student debt forgiveness and in, in making higher education free. That's, that's the, the, the main push that I know uh, I'm very much not alone in promoting. Um, no, actually, I was thinking that. I was thinking hmm. as you were talking, man, I mean, just taking away the financial burden would be so huge for so many people, not just mm -hmm. right out of high school people, but even adults who needed to go back in order to get to a place they were making an income that could support their families or having mm -hmm. free education could be insanely helpful in this nation. Exactly. And, and that's tied to 
a whole host of, of other social and political problems that require right. a lot of attention. But just in the case of schools specifically and universities and whatnot, freeing up people's time so they don't have to worry about paying for college would be a huge help. I guess the main things is student loan debt forgiveness, making higher education free and better healthcare. Those, those are, those are th- all the way. Yeah. Three, those three, are three major problems. things, three major <laughs> things that would help a lot for not just people in university, but just in general, in regards to how COVID has affected people. Well, I think the hardest thing for me in that interview was just hearing how, how stressful and how, what a bummer it was basically to be so isolated during COVID. Yeah, that's hard to hear. Um, college, you think of as this great, exciting time with all kinds of opportunities, but to feel that way. Yeah, and there were so many students that went through that, I'm sure. Um, I know we have some examples of students who really did well and thrive, but I think for most students, it was a really hard time. Yeah, I agree. So let's switch gears and talk to Denise. Um, we're going to hear a professor, you know, sort of from her lens as a professor, but then also from her role as an administrator for the university, some of the things that they were changing and really identifying because of what happened during COVID. I'm excited. All right. So Denise, start by telling us a little bit about who you are. Sure, absolutely. First, thank you for having me be part of your podcast. I'm super excited about the work that you're doing. My name is Dr. Denise Montoya. I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I actually dropped out of high school at the age of 17. I went to my second week of my junior year, And I decided, or actually my mother pressured me into starting college immediately, and I did so. I finished up my first year of college when my friends were graduating from high school. I then achieved my associates, my bachelor's, two masters, and my PhD. And the only reason that I say that is because I've seen what education has, how education has transformed my own life and the opportunities that it's brought to me. I'm currently a faculty member and the Associate Vice President for Finance Administration and Government Relations with a small comprehensive university in rural New Mexico, New Mexico Highlands University. I love what I do. I've been teaching for over 15 years, a class a semester for 15 years, including spring, summer, and fall. I also have been actively involved prior to launching what I'm doing today is I was in the field of human resources for about three decades. And I was actively a volunteer with the Society for Human Resource Management. I served as a local president for the local chapter, HRMA in Albuquerque, the largest chapter in New Mexico. I was also the SHRM director And then I went on to represent as the membership advisory representative to serve 10 states in the Southwest area and served as a liaison to the SHRM board of directors located out in Washington, D.C. So that's a little bit about my background. I'm married. I've been married for over 25 years. I have an incredible family, an incredible mother, and I'm grateful for all the things that she's inspired me to do throughout my life support and encouragement. Well, not only do you work at the university in administration, you also have actively been a professor ongoing for what, at least six years? More than that. 15. Holy moly. And you were, you were professoring during COVID. Yes, absolutely. I was. I have literally been teaching for 15 years in about five different institutions in higher education. All right. So one of the things that you and I were talking about, because I know Denise outside of (laughs) professionally, I know her as a friend. We have a long history together of being good friends. And she always inspires me to go above and beyond. I love it. So we were out walking a few weeks ago on a Saturday morning, enjoying the beautiful hot air balloons in the New Mexico sky. And we were talking about some of the challenges that higher education students went through during quarantine when they had to go 100% virtual. And Denise was talking to me a little bit about some of her experience as a professor with students and their difficulties engaging and some of the things that she did 
to support students who are virtual to get them to engage. Will you tell us a little bit about that, Denise? Sure. You know, I remember the day that we were told to stay home and go completely online as an institution. So immediately people rallied together to offer support, additional training, to learn how to teach online, and most importantly, learn how to do it effectively with the tools that we have. Before that, I think online teaching, I, well, I know online teaching is nothing new. It's just something that has grown and enhanced. If you asked me to do online teaching 15 years ago, actually, I was asked to do online teaching, I said no. I said, I want to engage. I want to know my students. I want to know who they are. I want to know where they're going, what, what their life ambitions are. But that's changed so much with technology. Now the tools that they have available are phenomenal to be able to successfully teach online. It was hard. It was, it was a tough transition. Prior to COVID, I was teaching half online and half in the classroom. So I could have a Zoom and then my students actually in person in the classroom at the same time. That's, that, that's an interesting concept. It's doable, um, but definitely um, a challenge. When we went completely online, yes, students were maybe not as motivated, but I tried to find ways to help them get motivated. So some of the things that I would do and I still do is require them to be on camera. I wanna know their personalities. I wanna know what they're up to. And what I often tell them is if you were in the classroom, you wouldn't be cooking, writing cards, texting. You wouldn't do, I, I would be able to see you doing that. So it's no different being online. I want you fully engaged. But I also find opportunities to ask them about their own experiences and encourage them to share that and remind them that I'm just as much of a learner as they are. And this is really a learning environment. So what you have to say matters, what you're thinking matters, and sharing your experiences really matters, not just to me, but to your other peer students as well. I really like that you were getting students to kind of mentally wrap their brain around, even though we're on a computer screen, we're gonna act like students. We're gonna do the things that students and professors do. We're gonna have class properly. And I think that was tricky. I think especially in K-12 education, that was really, really hard for a lot of students. But I know in talking with the college student that we interviewed for this podcast, you know, he did not feel connected with his peers when he was in this 100% virtual world. And that was one of the things that really caused him to isolate more and more and feel more and more withdrawn and disconnected, not just from college, but from the world. And so I think those little things you know, encouraging students to really engage and do actions and behave the way they would in a classroom is really powerful for helping them to see the value of being connected, even though they were virtual. What was fun as well is I try to, I teach leadership management and human resource courses, but I try to incorporate a lot of technology into the course content, into the course curriculum because I think it's important that they understand it and have fun with it. So I started using one of these apps and it's called Pro Minute Office Hours. And the app is a way for faculty to speak to students, but instead of text messaging or emailing, it's through video. And so you can, people's personalities can come out. What's fun about that is that that app was actually developed by one of New Mexico Highlands University's alum, Isaac Roy Baugh. And so we partnered on that and we launched it in my classroom and it was so much fun to see our students engage. As a matter of fact, I had an African-American woman, probably in her mid to late sixties, first time in college, leave me messages beyond what was required in the syllabus. She was just having so much fun with it. I would have students send me messages and tell me what books to read, what TED Talks to listen to, um, what was working in their organization. It was so much fun. The second thing that I use in my classroom to make it more fun and engaging is I have them learn a software called Adobe Express. 
It's a free software where you make videos. And what's cool about that is that they teach whatever chapter they choose and they make animation. They can insert videos, pictures, text, and they teach the class. And I have really strict requirements around that. And what's fun about that is one of the students a couple of years ago actually used that software. She was working for a company and she used that to apply for an international competition for professional development and she got it. And she believes it was because she used a different way to sell herself. And so I think that's pretty, pretty cool and amazing. And then students are not just learning the content, they're learning technology and then they help each other out. They help, they, they give tips to each other. And when they do that, they're engaging with each other. And it, it, it's a reason to help and reach out to each other. I would imagine there are even some students who engaged more that way because they were more comfortable over technology or they felt more confident with that. I'm sure it was not the majority, but at least a few. Yeah, I would say a good 50 to 70% really enjoyed the experience. And there's, there's obviously a few that don't quite adapt quickly or as much to the technology. But seeing those students that do and working with the others that don't, I think it's really important because that's how we're communicating these days. There's never going to be anything that replaces the richest form of communication face-to-face. But if technology is the next best thing, how do we teach them to embrace it, to use it, and to use it effectively? So I guess the other thing is, were your classes still virtual in 2020-2021 school year? virtual for a couple of years. And actually this semester, we went to in-person last semester and we offered the classes both online and in classroom. And all my students chose online. This semester is the first time I actually have three live students in the classroom and the rest of them on Zoom. So they're on, on campus, but the, the coolest thing about this is it open, it becomes borderless. I've had a student who was in the military, stationed in Korea, taking my class in uniform with his iPad at all hours of the morning. And he was phenomenal. And he'd be holding his iPad and you could hear what's going on in the background in uniform, doing his best. So this, this semester, I have students from California, Chicago, Arizona, Colorado, and New Mexico. So, and some of these students were on campus last year or the year before and decided to stay in their hometown and continue their degree at the university. And what is the class? Human resource management is what I'm teaching currently. That's a really great opportunity for a lot of students. Yes, absolutely. So a few years ago, if I can tell you a little bit about my dissertation, when I was working on my PhD, I really wanted to learn more about distinguished faculty teaching excellence in a community college setting. So I went out and I met with distinguished faculty. And what I mean by distinguished faculty is those that have been awarded that based on a process that the institution had. So I went out and I interviewed them and then I did focus interviews and then I developed what I call a learning culture model that I believe not only is important in schools, but I think you can use it in the the classroom and beyond. You can use it in work situations. You can even use it in family lives. I call it the ACEs model. And the first thing is to activate high expectations and encourage excellence. I love when you have high expectations. In my whole life, I've been told my expectations are too high. I don't, I don't listen to that. When people rise to the occasion, it's amazing what happens to their self-esteem, their confidence, and they want to know what's next for them. The second element that I created was applied theory to real world. You've got to help students understand what this means and how they're going to use it in real life situations and draw in their experiences so that they can relate personally to what it is that you're trying to teach them. The next is authentically connect with the intent to establish trust. In order to create a sense of belonging, 
And in order to create a sense of community, you have to be a trusted entity that truly invests in them, invests in their growth, their development, and, and looks at them as a holistic individual, which is a learner, right? And the next thing is to cultivate a passion for lifelong learning. I just want to echo what you say, Holly. I was just speaking to a friend earlier, and I said, you know, I, I love being surrounded by people who challenge my thinking, who, who may not agree with me, but we've got so much respect for each other in our friendship, in our professionalism, as friends, as colleagues, that we hear each other out and we're constantly wanting to learn more. And Holly, you define what that is. And, and I, I really love that. I, I, I thrive in that environment. And I think we need more of that in schools, in workplaces, and in families. Denise, before you go to the next piece, really quick, what you're talking about, I think, and we'll circle back around after you finish your ACEs, because this is something every teacher, no matter what grade you're in, every employer, everybody who has to work with people need to hear about the ACEs, because I think you are so right on. But that comment you just made about surrounding yourself with people who have varying opinions and ideas and how healthy that can be. That's something we need to circle back around and talk about because I think during COVID, one of the social issues that came up, particularly for students, is feeling like other people's opinions, if they were different from yours, that should be a reason to segregate away from them. And that is not what we need to be teaching. Well, and I can go on and on about that topic. So please let's circle back. Yeah. I think that the world is becoming so complicated and the solutions that we have to the problems today aren't working. So we've got to create new solutions. And we're only going to do that if we better listen to each other and figure out the new ways from various perspectives in a healthy, professional, respectful manner. And I think we've, we've gotten away from that in so many areas of society. But I'll get back to the last two pieces. Embrace diversity. Creating that, and this is really what we're talking about as well, is creating that psychologically safe place where people are able to take risks and people are able to be themselves. And instead of dinging them for taking a risk and failing, is figuring out what you're supposed to learn from that and move on. I think a lot of organizations are no longer in existence for one reason. They stopped learning and they stopped learning together. And the last piece is my favorite piece, they're all my favorite pieces, is to strengthen student confidence in their ability to learn. So not just confidence, but the confidence that they can learn. There's so many resources out there. If you don't know, I always say, then ask. If you don't know, research, find out answers. They're all around us. We just have to want it enough to learn more about it. I think that your enthusiasm, I'm hoping, I'm banking on your enthusiasm being contagious because I think um, going through COVID and just the strain on everyone worldwide has kind of dampened our enthusiasm for learning and for kind of going above and beyond. And I think there are a lot of teachers who ended up just feeling exhausted and underappreciated or like that they couldn't succeed because the way that education was shifting. And it's so cool to hear a perspective that is, we can do this. We can get creative. We can go above and beyond and we can care about our students. There's enough time in the day to really invest in them. And absolutely that is a huge component for getting your students to trust you and be willing to come out of their shell. And I think we see so many students and Shannon and I have talked about this a ton. So many students get like apathetic and just like, ah, I can't do it. Ah, it doesn't matter. Nah, the world's going to fall apart anyway. Why try? Like we've got to help them get excited again. And that is hard. I'll tell you about a program that I'm really proud of. You know, you talked about some of the challenges that, education is facing. And I think that COVID really isolated people. And I think that people need people. They need that socialization. And we went away from that. And so now we're experiencing a lot of mental health issues, suicide rates going up, anxiety, 
um, in social settings and other settings, um, loneliness, depression, you name it. Yep. I'll tell you about a program that I'm really proud of. Four years ago, we launched what's called the New Mexico Highlands University Legislative Leadership Fellowship Program. Super cool program. Students apply for it and we actually take them out to the legislature and we have them meet with the governor, lieutenant governor, legislatures, and we teach them about the budgeting process in the state of New Mexico and how to lobby on behalf of something that is important to you. So the students go out and they solicit other students. They say, okay, help us increase recruitment and retention and tell us what you'd like to lobby for, for one-time capital outlay funds. So the students come to us in this leadership development program, shy, timid, uncertain, and they're meeting with these people and they feel intimidated. By the second or third week, it's amazing to see their confidence, their questions, their, their ability to go talk to legislatures and lobby on behalf of what's important to them. And then the best thing is for the last four years, they've been successful. The first year, they were able to get monies for Wi-Fi, improved Wi-Fi. The second year, they were able to get gym equipment and gaming devices. The third year, they were able to get funding for uh, Purple Brew, which is like a Starbucks. They want it to be a hangout for students to study. This year was the most successful year where now when you go through Highlands and you see solar panels and recharging state stations, it will be as a result of the students' lobbying effort. But the best thing is beyond the program, these students become our student Senate presidents, our student board of regents. They do national internships, statewide internships. We've had students get uh, positions in, in, in the state government, learning more about the legislative process. It's, it's just phenomenal. But there's a lot of mentorship and growth and taking risks and giving them challenges and they're up for it. One story that sticks out in my mind is a student who said they went to a large institution where they felt like a number. They came to our institution and they felt like it was very personalized. This program, according to this individual, changed the trajectory of their life because prior to coming into Highlands, they wanted to commit suicide. So being involved in this program completely changed him. Now, just the last few weeks, he actually came back to share his experience with other students. So, you know, it's about helping them realize that they can be that next leader in government. They can be that next lawyer or healthcare provider or teacher making a difference in the community, building their confidence that they can learn just like everyone else, despite their circumstances. That sounds like a great program. And you answered my follow-up question. I was going to ask why you think those shy students became so sort of good at making those requests and lobbying for what they were wanting. And But it sounds like the small environment is huge for those students. And then all of the confidence building. And, and it's also the relationship development. You know, we tell them, don't do it alone. Get a partner. Go out and do it together. And so they're sharing that experience with someone else. And doing small cohorts, I think, really matter because people develop relationships that oftentimes are long-term important relationships to them as they continue to grow and develop professionally and personally. The student that we interviewed for this podcast um, was talking about how when they were virtual, that a lot of other people on their own initiated like study groups and things like that on Zooms, but because he's a more quiet person, he didn't really engage in a lot of that. And then when they did get back in person, he felt very out of the loop, like he didn't know people or he hadn't developed any relationships like his peers had. And I think when you're in a large university, I wonder if it's almost on the professor to kind of force people in the beginning to to get into cohorts or to make assignments where they would have to partner up or find a small group, even if it's only once or twice throughout the course, but just to make people connect, especially if they're virtual, because there are a lot of shy students or students who that's not their strength to reach out and develop those relationships. But if they kind of made it part of the program, made it part of the classwork, then it would create some of that. I mean, I think 
It's so unique that the university that you work for is smaller and can do so much of that. But when we think about nationwide large universities, what can they be doing? How can they support the mental health of students? Because there's going to be a, a little bit of a, I guess, long-term effect of this. I think for the next five years or more, we'll see some trickling out of this. Some kids, some people, and they weren't necessarily kids, but some students left going to school because COVID was overwhelming or because of circumstances, maybe health reasons, whatever. But how are we going to get those people back into education, especially when it's so expensive and it makes them feel so isolated? We've got to figure out. And maybe you know some of the trends that are happening nationwide in universities. I've heard a lot of making um, access to counseling or being able to schedule appointments for counseling, like people trying to do that. But We need to go deeper than that because people who are quiet and withdrawn aren't going to step out of their shell to make an appointment with someone they don't know or feel comfortable with. But how can we get them socializing? Because just the act of connecting can be so powerful for those students. Absolutely. And I think universities have always had, some institutions say wraparound services. Those are the services that help support their academic success. And I think a lot of universities and colleges already had that in place. They're just amplifying it and putting more resources into it. So um, for example, we have HU Cares, we have counseling services, um, we have food pantry access because I believe that a lot of students are also experiencing food insecurities, uh, shelter insecurities. Um, We have professional dress attire. Uh, We have a closet people can go to and get suits or something to make them feel good for their first interview. Um, We have all kinds of tutoring. I think the key in institutions is to make sure that everybody there knows what the resources are. Whether you're a faculty member, a student success coach, an administrator, is if a student's going to come to you and they need help, there's always some kind of resource that's going to benefit them. And I think we're lucky in New Mexico. I think most of our, if not all of the institutions, have a lot of extra support there for students. It's just making sure that they're aware of what's available to them. So the more people that know what's available to them, who can get to the students as quickly as possible to help them, I think that's really important. Some institutions also have what's called, it's like an at-risk software to identify. They have at-risk factors that will identify through the use of technology when a student could potentially be at risk. And so oftentimes a student will be called quickly to offer suggestions on how they could get support based on what they share with the individual who reaches out to them. So I think, I think a lot more institutions also have student success coaches, a model that actually reaches out and, and stays in contact with those students that are at risk or, or just at contact with students who want to reach out and just understand what resources are available to them to help them to help support them academically. So I know that you can't speak for other universities, but from your personal experience, do you feel like the social, emotional, or even mental health issues that many people felt like started to happen during COVID and the subsequent years? I'm having such awful allergies. And for anybody who's from New Mexico or this Southwest region, you know, this time of year, there's dust and all kinds of things. So I'm all stuffy and can't think straight. Um, The subsequent years following the original quarantine of COVID, were you hearing a lot about social emotional issues, mental health issues among students and even faculty or workers at the university? Prior to COVID, yes, I I think that we've experienced a lot more of that in society in general. And I don't know if more people are open and talking about it or if, if there's really been a spike. You know, after COVID, I think it was definitely enhanced because of that isolation and people hunkering down and so many things around us being shut down and people being fearful of going to any event where people were at because of COVID. So I definitely think it's changed drastically. 
I think there's a lot of resources and a lot of good conversation that's happening around that. But I actually think it's a, it's a statewide issue in which mental health care providers are limited. And when you don't have the experts to assist, that really poses challenges for the schools. I know that there's a shortage of teachers. I know that there's a shortage of social workers. I know that there's a shortage of psychiatrists and counselors. And I think that there, it's, it's a systemic issue and a lot of things have to improve around us. It's just like with education, we keep coming out last on the list, but I think there's a lot of factors that have to be willing to think differently from families to administrators, to legislators, to teachers, and everyone who impacts that educational system. I don't think there's one magic wand that will improve it. I think a lot of people have to come together and I think a good leader brings people together to have rich discussion, to think about new solutions. I don't know what those are, but we have to think differently. I think some of the things that you've brought up, like thinking about excellence and leadership, whether it's teaching or some other kind of leadership through that ACEs lens and really encouraging teachers, professors, leaders that are working with students of any kind to use that ACEs formula, because I think it's really powerful. And I think one of the things we see in general right now is that students today are not the students of the 50s or the 60s or the 80s. And so teaching them with old school methods isn't necessarily working. And yet we know that that interaction that takes place in a, you know, a physical classroom can be so powerful because of the relationship building, because of the social interactions and the opportunity to share ideas. So I think teachers are really having to be open to the concept of shifting how they teach, shifting what their lessons look like, because at the end of the day, it's about engagement. Students won't learn if they don't engage and you've got to get them to engage. And how do you do that? It's just very different today than it was even 10 years ago. And technology has a big piece of that. Society and community and cultures have a big piece of that. But we have to be flexible and we have to be willing to shift gears and try new things. And I think your ACEs model is such a key to how we could really, the lens we need to look at teaching through. Don't you think it's interesting? If anybody should be the role model for a lifelong learner, it should be a teacher. I'm fortunate because I teach management, leadership and management courses. So it forces me to be current and relevant. I'm constantly reading another article. I'm constantly looking at another TED talk. I'm constantly researching things. I'm constantly to make sure that what I'm providing to the students is current and relevant information. Because the way you used to lead 20, 30 years ago is not necessarily the same way you lead today. So it's, it's really important that Teachers stay current and relevant. And the second thing is our attention spans are so small and they keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter. I don't know if you've ever been on a all day conference online. It was difficult. I have a short attention span and it was difficult to do that. So you've got to keep it entertaining and interesting. And if you're talking the entire time, that's not really entertaining and interesting. But when you're hearing other people's perspectives and how they're interpreting what you have to say, that becomes more interesting, not only for the instructor, but for the rest of the learners in the classroom. Well, and I think that brings us right back around to what we said we were going to circle around to, and that is modeling, no matter the age of the student, and especially at college when these are adult learners, whether they're 18 or 65, we've got to model how to be a community. And that includes having ideas that are different than ours. And I know everybody finds this shocking, but Shannon and I don't agree on everything. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> we don't. And you know what? Denise and I don't agree on everything, even though we're very good, long, long-term friends. And I think it's so powerful because if you go on social media and somebody's like, I'm voting for this person, or I believe this statement, and then all of a sudden people are on their 
Facebook or on their Twitter or on their blog, blowing them up and telling them, you know, what a jerk they are. Why can't we have different ideas? Why can't we be uniquely ourselves and not be treated poorly for it? We need to shift that. I agree 2000% and you're seeing that all over the place. I I think it comes back to relationships. It's being able, the reason that you and I have such a good relationship is because we respect the qualities that we bring to the table and, and, and the perspectives enlighten us to think differently. It doesn't mean we're going to change. It doesn't mean we're going to change our minds. But we're taking in that information and digesting it and trying to understand what it means to you, why it means that to you, and how that relates to what I think or what I believe. So, you know, having and stop personalizing these things, you know, Amen. <laughs> when people disagree, like they're going after people personally, like separate that. Let's let's stick to what we're talking about and let's dissect it together with good intention to make it better. One of the things that I have students do in the classroom is give each other feedback. And I say two things, it's so easy to give each other feedback that's positive. That's a piece of cake. But if you're giving feedback with good intention to see that individual grow and develop and just get better, they receive that feedback very differently instead of defensively. So if you can establish those kinds of environments where people can be free to speak up and say what they think without being judged, staying focused on what the issue is at hand, I think we could create a much better world than we're in today. And a lot of people say, oh, that's optimistic. That's not realistic. Um, I, I disagree. I think it's very possible. We just have to be very intentional about it. And I think that's been a common theme through all of our interviews that no matter what age or grade you're teaching or focusing on, like building those relationships have been sort of a common like focus and needs to be. Absolutely. And through those relationships, you feel a sense of belonging and connection. And I think people need that more than ever coming out of COVID. And I think even when we're discussing the state of education now and where it should go, I got to be honest, I don't have the answers. You know, I, maybe I have a small piece of the puzzle. Maybe I have an idea, but for the most part, I don't have the answers. Our goal in this podcast is to hear what other people are thinking and to start conversations. And these can be difficult conversations and they can be happy conversations, But we need to have real conversations about what's working, what's not working, how we can shift. And I think the number one thing we're actually getting out of this first season is that one of the main shifts has to go back to relationship building, community building, and learning how to agree to disagree and listen to ideas that don't match ours and not, like you said, take it personal, not be offended, but be able to listen to that and and think, okay, let me, let me think about that. Let me really digest that. Let me think from somebody else's perspective, who I am is different than who you are. And that shifts how we think, but that's the beauty of the specialness of each of us. We all have something very unique to bring to the table and it's together with those different ideas that we really build something strong. And and I just hope that people can take away from this. It is okay to have an idea and it doesn't have to be everybody's idea. It can be your idea and it can be a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I don't think anything is ever one person's idea. I think greatness comes from an idea that's built upon, that's improved upon, that keeps getting bigger and bolder because multiple minds are trying to figure it out. So when you create that environment, you've got to have the intention of, how do we come up with a new solution? That's not your solution. That's not my solution. That's our solution that we're willing to try to get different results. And I think that's a grassroots thing. I mean, I don't care how many politicians we have in the world at the end of the day, it's every person listening to this podcast. It's every person out in the world doing their thing. We have got to get everybody involved. It doesn't matter if you're a parent, a student, a teacher, or just someone who is in the world, because these students are going to 
get through school and they're going to be leaders in our world and it's going to affect all of us. So we all need to care about this topic about education and we all need to be invested in having conversations to figure out how we do better. It's, it's really gonna take every single person, students included, to mm -hmm. make the kind of change that we need to see in our state because people from New Mexico are just as smart as people from around the world. Absolutely. And Colorado too, Shannon. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know about Colorado. I'm just kidding. I just came from Colorado. I just recently moved back and I love Colorado. <laughs> so I really appreciate how she tried to improve inter her interactions in virtual classes with her students. Yeah, that's powerful. The way that she really found ways to draw them in and make them engage. Yeah, that's a huge difference for those students. And it's awesome to hear that not just her university, but nationwide universities, even though we need virtual learning, I know for a lot of students, including myself, when I went for my master's, so grateful for virtual learning, but it's good to hear that colleges and universities are seeing that there is a social emotional impact to being 100% virtual for many students and trying to address that. It's just like anything else. One size doesn't fit all. Exactly, exactly. And that is something in education we need to be considering as we move toward figuring out ways to better our systems. All right, next week, we're shifting gears again. What do we have? We are gonna be talking about young learners like preschool through first, second grade. And then we're also gonna be talking about the population that is near and dear to my heart. Of course, <laughs> mine too. Our special education students, students who have unique needs and how COVID and virtual learning impacted them and sort of some of the long-term outcome from that. And then in our very last episode that's coming down the line, we're going to be talking about some really positive ways that we found to support students in those categories, even during COVID, but after. Great. Yeah, so we've got good stuff coming. I'm excited. All right, we need to educate ourselves, Shannon. So we can change the world. We, we can, can do, do better. better. You guys get back here. We've got good stuff coming next week. Bye.